Here's Danny to continue the Acts series. Good morning. How are y'all? Let me just underline the, uh, the events this coming weekend. The parade here in Sunbury is this next Saturday morning. And, and just a bit of history about this. When, when we planted this church 14, 15 years ago, we got here, we heard about the, the parade that they have over the 4th of July weekend, and we called them up because we heard that different local organizations and churches got involved. So I, I called them up and said, you know, we're a new church here in Sunbury. Can we actually participate in the parade? And they said, well, sure. And I, I said, now, how many people can march as part of our group? And they said, however many you want. I said, however many? And they said, yeah, more the merrier. So I said, like, if we brought our whole church, we could all march? And they said, sure. So every year, we basically, we, we have a float. This year, we'll have a float again. And it'll be, uh, actually, it's a, a flatbed trailer with our worship band playing and just a lot of fun, upbeat songs that they'll be playing along the parade route. And in front of that float, as many as you arrive, we'll march together, bring a bag of candy. We've tossed candy out to the kids, but it is a wonderful time for our church to interface with the community. It's a great time to get together because having three services, Saturday and two on Sunday, we don't get to see everybody. We don't get to gather together as, as one church. This is a good opportunity for that. So it's, it's a lot of fun good opportunity for the church to see that we're, we're just, nor well, we're not that normal, but we're relatively normal people here at the Vineyard, and I, I want to encourage you to join us. That's next Saturday morning. We meet in the parking lots in front of the, the, uh, the Big Walnut High School at 9 o'clock, and we'll get together and we'll march. It's, it's less than an hour uh, parade itself, but meet at 9 o'clock in the parking lots in front. Look for green uh, balloons, that's where we'll be gathering together, and I guarantee you, you'll have a lot of fun. So, we are in the book of Acts. We're up to about chapter 9 today. Uh, let's go ahead and pray and ask that God would, would be with us this morning. Father, I ask that you would allow us to, to just harvest from this chapter those things that would help us to not just understand more about you, but that we would be able to, to meet you in our, in our time today, that we would be able to see you, that you'd be able to, to, to apprehend our hearts and our minds this morning. Come and have your way with us. Give me clarity of speech that I could really deliver those things that you want us to see in this, in this passage. In Jesus' name, we welcome you. Amen. Those of you who, who know me have maybe heard me share a little bit about my, my background, but one of the things that, that I recognize is, is, has been a key factor in my life is that my father, who was, a, he was a good father, he was a good provider, but my father was painfully shy. I mean, just extraordinarily shy. He's probably one of the most quiet, shy individuals that I've ever met in my life. So growing up, I mean, just an, an example, and this is, this is no lie, I don't remember in all the years that I grew up in my father's home, I don't remember one conversation about anything other than exchanging information. 
you know, when we're leaving to, on a trip, when we need to, you know, uh, what my curfew is, what, you know, that my room needs to be cleaned or whatever. There's never been a conversation where my father would have asked me, how are you feeling about this? How's school going? I would have never thought of asking my father about information. He had an interesting life. He was a prisoner of war in World War II and in Germany for, for almost two years. And I've tried to get him to share about it, but it there would be it was no use. It would he would literally get embarrassed if you asked him personal questions of what what was that like? How did you feel at at 19 years old being shot down in an airplane and being in in a prisoner of war camp? He just couldn't express himself, and that that quietness, that shyness in my father, has had significant impact in my life and in particularly it's impacted my relationship with with God because that re reality of having an earthly father who is so quiet so non-communicative so distant caused me to transfer my experience with my earthly father onto my heavenly father so my, my initial assumption and my core relationship with God once I came to, to know Christ at 19 was that God is probably a good father. He probably sees and is aware of my existence. But any notion of, of connection, any notion of an exchange of, of, uh, of conversation any thought that he would draw near to me or that I would be invited to draw near to him was something that was not natural to my understanding of a father. So there had to be deliberate focus in my early life with Christ, and, and it continues, deliberate focus and awareness of this, this reality, this presupposition, this this expectation, or more precisely, this lack of expectation in my relationship with God so that I could come to know him as I, as I have to in an increasing manner. I could come to know God as personal, as engaging, as one who draws and not only desires to draw near to me, but does invite me to draw near to him. And those of you who've grown up in, 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 well, we've all grown up in homes in one way, shape, or form, the environment that we grow up in, whether you have a, a, distance, a distant father or an absentee parent, it, it has impact on us, and we need to be aware of that so we don't superimpose our imprint from our upbringing on God. In other words, if you grew up in a home that was volatile, a home that was unpredictable, you probably, as a, as a kid, had an expectation of, of, of chaos, perhaps, of volatility. And it, it can infiltrate your expectation 
as you're a child of God, where, where God is unpredictable, where you, you don't know how he's going to respond. You don't know what his thoughts are. You don't know whether he's going to be mad one day and, and pleased the next day. And we can easily take our experience with earthly parents and press them on to God. If you ended up growing up in a home that was was abusive, particularly verbally abusive, what happens, as you probably recognize in your lives, is that you grow up almost as if you carry your parents in your hip pocket and you hear that those voices inside. You've internalized that the verbal criticism, the verbal put-downs, the, the lack of any kind of positive expectation for your life, and you internalize that and you run those voices, those tapes in your mind, and probably what happens to many people is that they again superimpose those, those voices of criticism, those voices of skepticism about your life, you know, that you're going to be a failure. Who do you think you are? Just, just be quiet. Get in the background. You superimpose that expectation, those voices that you heard growing up. First, it becomes just part of an inner voice that you have towards yourself. And if you're not aware, it becomes that voice of your heavenly father that you are hearing Criticism. You're hearing that kind of, of skeptical attitude, that critical attitude towards you. So all this is to say that we need to be aware of that because the reality is this. And this is the foundation of what I want to talk about today and what the passage that we're going to look at speaks to. The reality is that we have a Father in heaven who has consistently, regularly, and forever will be inviting us to draw near. That is the character of the God that we worship. That's the characteristic of the God that has, uh, that has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ that God has not only said in his word, but he has demonstrated over and over and over again that he is a relational God and that his desire, his passionate desire, evidenced by his behavior throughout history, is to draw near to us and continually pursue us and invite us to draw near to him. The fact that humanity... Is, is a relational, is relational. The fact that our, our lives here on earth are marked by relationship, oftentimes very broken, sometimes destructive, always some, complicated. The fact that relationships mark our lives here on earth is simply a reflection of a God in whose image we've been created. God is a relational God, and therefore, though we're not very good at it sometimes, we are relational beings, because our Father is. We are chips off the old block, if you will, though we are in, in process of, of learning how to, how to do it well. So here we have a God who invites us to draw near. We have a God who has consistently come to his people from the beginning of time, from the Garden of Eden. God was one who, who walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. God was one who, who, he wasn't surprised when he came to the garden one day and they were hiding. But we, we notice that even in the, in, in the creation account, it was God who said, 
why are you hiding? Who told you? This, this information that is, has caused you to back away from me. God is, is relentlessly pursuing us. And what we need to understand that when God draws close, as he did as, when, when Jesus came to earth, when, when Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth and walked among us, took on human form, that he was all about relationships. And when Jesus came, the king of, of the universe stepped off his throne and, and walked on this earth, the king brings the aspects, a reflection of his kingdom, of, of his reign, of his rule, of his purposes, of his desires. And the earth began to be infiltrated by the characteristics of God's good purposes and desires. The kingdom came. And that's why John the Baptist, in announcing Jesus, said the, the kingdom of God is at hand because the king was coming. And in the wake of the king who walks this earth, the wake of the king who, who indwells us by his spirit, is a reflection of this relational desire. That when the king draws near, when, when Jesus invites us to draw near to him, there are characteristics, there's, there's an evidence of his presence. The scriptures talk about Christ's aroma, that there's an aroma of Christ that we become aware of. Not literally, necessarily, but there is something that is characteristic when we are in his presence. The scriptures talk about the, the fruit of the spirit of God. Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. It's, it's the, the aroma of Christ. It's the characteristics of Christ as he's in us and with us and draws near to us. Because he's relational. And we need to understand that the presence of God ought to be making a difference in our lives. Not just cognitively, but experientially. The presence of God with us and in us, individually, in our homes, in our families, going with us at our workplace, in our churches, it should make a difference. There should be a reflection of him because it's a natural outworking of relationship. There should be evidence. If we, if we are willing and desiring to see it, there ought to be evidence of his grace and his mercy in our lives because that's part of what characterizes Christ and his kingdom. We, re we read in the Gospels that wherever Jesus went, there was evidence of, of healing. And not just physical healing, though we certainly see that, that virtually anywhere that Jesus went, he healed the sick, opened blind eyes, made the lame walk, raised individuals from the dead. There's evidence of, of healing of his restoring in increasing manner what was lost in the garden. But not just physical healing, but wherever 
Jesus was, we see spiritual healing. We see people who were far off from God, separated from God. Because Christ drew near, we see a healing of relational, of a, in a relational sense. We see people coming close and learning how to draw near to God. We see emotional healing as well. You, you can't read the scriptures but to see that God was relational and his relational brought transformation in individual lives. We read about the story about this one man who was, who was blind. His name was Bartimaeus. But he knew that Jesus, who was coming into his village, he knew that Jesus was one who could change his life forever. And wherever Jesus walked, we read that Bartimaeus would just follow him around and say, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus turned to Bartimaeus. And he said, what do you want? And Bartimaeus said, I want to see. And Jesus healed his blind eyes. Bartimaeus knew through observation, through, through stories that he heard, that Jesus wasn't one who kept people at arm's length, but his very nature was one that, that bid people to come closer. We read about the woman who was caught in sin, the woman who was an adulteress. And when she heard that Jesus was just down the street at a Pharisee's house, she didn't run the other way and say, I don't want to be seen by him. She went to Jesus because there was something about Jesus that drew people in. That there was something about Jesus that was immensely relational. There was something about Jesus that continually would give an invitation to people to come even closer. So if your perception of Jesus is one who, who, who needs to be sort of held at arm's length, or your perception of Jesus is one who keeps you at arm's length, you're being deceived by a, 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 a misconception because the very opposite is true. Children would just draw near to Jesus. A woman who was hemorrhaging just thought, if I could just get close enough to Jesus and touch his, his robe, I'd be healed. And so she was. The very nature of Christ is relational. And he is in a relentless pursuit of you. And we'll be seeing how that works out today. Now, remember last week, in chapter 8, what we, we saw is this relational evidence of a father who is drawing near. We see that when, when Philip last week was preaching the gospel to the Samaritans, remember the Samaritans who the Jews hated? But when Philip went into Samaria and began to preach the gospel, maybe to, certainly to the Samaritans' surprise, maybe to Philip's surprise, all of a sudden, people began to see, it says, signs and wonders. Because accompanying the proclamation of God's presence and his good news and, and the gospel, accompanying it is the evidence of that good news. It is a relatively current uh, phenomena that the proclamation of the gospel 
is separated from the demonstration of the gospel. Let me say that again. It's a, it's a new phenomena, a new experience in, in, in church history that the, the proclamation of the gospel, the, 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 the telling of the good news of Christ is separated from a demonstration, an experiential demonstration of the goodness of Christ. For 2,000 years, basically, they were always joined. The, the early church certainly, we see demonstrated in the book of Acts, and for centuries afterwards, the, the early church understood that the Christian life was, a, was like show and tell in second grade. You tell them the truth, and then they get to see and experience the truth touching their lives. Again, whether it's transformation of, of uh, a spiritual nature or emotional transformation, physical healing, but change is part of what it looks like when we live in the wake of God's presence as we walk with him. Sometimes we act as though we, we have to pry out of God's stingy hands the, the evidence of his goodness. And folks, I, I'm here to tell you, and most importantly, the, the scriptures tell us, as we'll see today, that the, that the total opposite is true. It is not we who are trying to, to pry out little morsels of, of his goodness. It is Christ who wants to touch our lives. And, and granted, sometimes it, it doesn't come in packages that we would normally think, well, this is a good thing. But the relationship with Christ is his priority. The pursuit of us as individuals, our, our homes, our families, our marriages, our our churches, our relationships with roommates, our interaction with, with workmates, the pursuit of us, the impacting of our lives is just part of who he is and how he relates. So in, in, we're in, in Acts chapter 9. Let's, let's see how that works out in this particular chapter. Just as a little background. You remember two weeks ago... Heather spoke, and she talked about the, 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 the stoning of, of Stephen. Stephen was a disciple. He was the first martyr in the early church, and he was persecuted for his faith. He was killed. He was stoned to death. And before he, he was stoned to death, he, he testified. He gave a, 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 a proclamation of the goodness of God and how God from the beginning of time was one who pursued his people. And, and the Jews didn't want to hear that and they stoned him. And re, who was it who, who held the coats, the robes of those who threw the stones? Do you remember? It was Saul, who we now know as, as the Apostle Paul. But Saul was a persecutor of, of the early church. So we pick up here in Acts chapter 9, 
starting in verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, to this, who were followers of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So, like Stephen, they could be stoned to death. So Saul had it in him as a, as a, a significant rabbi in the in uh, the first century uh, uh, in first century Judaism. Paul was on assignment to go from city to city, find out those who were followers of Christ who were part of the way, and then to bring them back to Jerusalem to be to be killed. Verse 3, it says, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And the answer came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul was, was minding his own business. Well, actually, he wasn't. He was minding God's business. But Saul was on his way to Damascus to find more Christians so he could arrest them and, and, and bring them back to Jerusalem to be killed. But God was, was like the hound of heaven after Saul. Met him on that road, knocked him to the ground, and it wasn't a violent act. It's just when the presence of God is, is, is so present. We see in Scripture oftentimes when, when Christ in his majesty comes and draws near, we see people fall. We saw people fall in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see people fall when, when Jesus comes in, in, in his glory. It's, it's, and certainly as Jesus drew near to Saul, in that moment, Saul just fell to the ground. And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Well, Paul would have said, well, I, I didn't know you were real. I mean, I, I knew there's a person named Jesus who lived that people were following him. But Paul had no understanding up until this moment Jesus was supernatural, that he was the God who came from the, the very throne of heaven to draw near to his people. God then said to Saul in verse 6, Now get up and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless, I would imagine, speechless. They heard the sounds but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This encounter with Jesus, not initiated by Saul, but again, initiated by God himself, drawing near to, to this persecutor, changed his life forever. And quite frankly, it changed this world forever. Apart from the resurrection of Christ and the virgin birth, 
what we are reading about right here is probably the third most significant event in all of history. Because it was Saul, as we read in verse 15, it's Saul who was then sent as an apostle to the Gentiles. His life was flipped upside down. God wasn't coming near to Saul to say, you are in deep trouble. Now, you know, it's karma. You know, you did bad things and I'm going to get you. No, Christ drew near to Saul to apprehend him so that he could surrender to the purposes that God had for his life. God comes and draws near to us so that we can be apprehended for the purposes that he has for his life, for our lives. In verse 15, well, to catch you up, what happens after this? You know, so Saul goes to Damascus. He's blind. God brings him to Damascus, says, listen, to this man in Damascus, said, a disciple named Ananias. He says, Ananias, I want you to go to this certain street. I want you to ask around and find this man, Saul, and I want you to pray for him. And Ananias says, God, you know, I've heard about Saul. He's, he's out to kill Christians. I am one of them, and I have no desire to go and find Saul. I'm worried about Saul finding me. God says, Ananias, go find Saul, and I want you to lay hands on him and pray for him. Why? Verse 15. This man is my chosen instrument to pro proclaim my name to the Gentiles. You see the relentless nature of God? He is setting things up in order to capture Saul's life. He sets things up in order to capture our lives, not just at some point when we come to Christ, but each and every day so that we can continue to walk with Christ. So Ananias finds Saul, prays for him, and it says that the scales on his eyes, it was as those scales on his eyes fell off and Saul could see. His life was turned upside down because that's what happens when a God who is utterly relational encounters us. Or more precisely, that's what happens when us encounter a relational, when we encounter a relational God. So Saul, who became known as Paul, came to not just an intellectual change of mind, it wasn't that, that he just then learned new theology, but he encountered a person. It was the person of Christ that changed Paul's life. Not just an intellectual uh, story, not just a new theology, though his theology indeed did change. But folks, re realize this. The value of theology, the value of being men and women of the word, is not so that we can gain knowledge, but so that we can see Christ and know him and build relationship with him. The person of Christ is the end of our study of the word. The person of Christ and knowing him is the end and the goal of the, of the 
the study and growth in theology. When I married Penny, she didn't say, so what are we going to do for our honeymoon? And I, I didn't respond by saying, can you write a 50,000 word essay on your background, your temperament? Tell me everything about yourself. Fill it with stories. And then instead of a honeymoon, I'm just going to get a hotel room on my own and just read all about you. No. I, I, I wanted to get to know her. I didn't want to just acquire information. We want to get to know Christ. Why? Because he wants to know us and to be known by us. So Paul's life was turned upside down because he encountered the person of Christ. And if you get nothing else this morning, folks, understand this, that the end of our, our journey, our faith walk, the end is knowing him. The reason we come to church, hopefully, is so we can know him. The reason we read the scripture is so we can come to know him and see him be impacted by Christ. The reason why we, we share uh, fellowship, why we share stories, why we give testimonies and conversations on the phone and on, on Facebook about what God is doing in our lives is so that we can encourage one another to know him so that we can fully realize the, the purpose that Christ came, the purpose for which Christ died on the cross so that we can enter his holy presence, so we can, can make good on that invitation to be his children, the, sh the sheep of his pasture. So let, let's talk practically. Why is it that so many of us don't sense this personal reality of Christ who draws near to us? Why is it that for so many of us, God seems, perhaps more often than not, seems so far away? There's reasons. And fortunately, there are reasons that we can do something about. The reason is that we all interpret what we experience in this world, what we see, hear, feel, well, the, all the experiences through our own worldview. And the reality is that the way we view the world, the way we interpret life can either filter God out or it can help us see God more clearly. A great example in the scriptures. There, Saul, who later on was known as Paul the Apostle, was, was preaching the word in this one village. It was an island. And he was with a number of the, the islanders. He picked up a stack of wood because he was going to build a fire. And in that stack of wood, there was a, a poisonous snake. And, and it attached itself to Paul's hand. And immediately, 
the islanders said, this man must be a murderer. That was their response. He must be a murderer because he's going to obviously die. You know, karma. I mean, he, he must have done something wrong and the gods are going to kill him because a po this poisonous snake that they were familiar with had attached itself. He, he's a goner. Why did they think that? Why was that, that their first conclusion? Because of their worldview. They believed in karma. Bad thing happened. He must have been really bad because he's going to die here in a moment. That was their, that was their expectation. That's how they interpreted it. Now, Paul didn't die. He shook his hand. That, that snake, that poisonous snake, fell off. He didn't die. And all of a sudden, what were they saying? He, he's a god. He, he, he must be a god that has come to earth because he didn't die. You see how worldview, your understanding, how you interpret what goes on around you is affected by your presuppositions? Now, if that happened in front of us and someone was bit by a poisonous snake, highly venomous snake, and didn't die because of our worldview, what would we have said? Must have been an old snake. No more venom. You know, maybe the snake had bit a rock and the, the fangs fell off and, and, and he was just gummed. You know, we would have explained it, right? We would have explained it according to our worldview. So why is it that we don't see and experience God in our lives? Because our expectations become the filter through which we interpret life. So when we th see things happening in our lives that are good or that are blessings or, or that can lead to us experiencing the presence of God, do we interpret it with a, a, with, with a biblical, Christ-centered worldview that says there is a God who is at work and is alive and is present within me and with me? Or do we interpret it through a very naturalistic worldview? I, I, I am certain that we miss much of what God is doing in our lives because we don't have a worldview that truly expects that God is active in our lives. That God is desiring to draw near to us. So therefore, those act, the activity of God in your life, the activity of God in my life, so easily can be just filtered out and called coincidence that this happened or that didn't happen. Or good or bad luck. Or just a matter of my effort. That's why things took place in my life. And we filter out the very gracious and merciful hand of God because we don't really believe it's there. What's more is many of us run from, we resist consciously or subconsciously the, the activities of God and, and the context where God's activity takes place. That is to say, we, we don't put ourselves in situations 
where we anticipate God is going to show up here, where I want to see and experience Christ here. We, we, we come and gather together on a Sunday morning and, and worship the Lord without the expectation of what might God do today when I go and gather with other brothers and sisters? What might God want to do in me this morning? What, what might he do through me this, this morning? How, how might he use me or speak to me or speak through me? Is, is that how we approach gathering together? I, I don't know. You answer that for yourself. But understand what our expectations are in the context where God is at work will dictate what we, what we see. Because our, our relationship with God like, is like, like most, in many ways, not entirely, but our relationship with God is like most relationships. It, it, it's a process. It's growing. And like any relationship, and this is important, like any relationship, our relationship with God is one that requires investment, like every relationship. And what we invest in, or what we don't invest in, has a result. Same thing with my relationship with Penny. My relationship with Penny is one that, where I, I, I live deliberately, she lives deliberately, in order for us to get the fullness out of it. You know, we, we've been married for 42 years, and, and Penny would be the first to say it's probably about 39 of the best years of our lives. Th those first three or four years, they, they were hard. And, and we had to be really deliberate. And over the years, there are times where we'd recognize relationally we had just drifted, where, where it was dry, where there was not much connection. And we had to choose. Well, we want to do something about it. We don't have to just accept, well, that's just the way it is. We would talk to counselors. We would invest in, in, in re-engaging. And it made a difference. Years ago, I, I had a, uh, it was a physician who came into my office. This is a long time ago, 20, 25 years ago. He came into my office and said, Pastor, you know, I just needed to let you know, I, I've fallen out of love with my wife. And I've fallen in love with this, uh, he was a physician, I've fallen in love with this nurse who, who I work with. And I said, oh, you just fell out of love, eh? Yeah, I just, just fell out of love, nothing I can do about it, it just happens. Fell in love with this nurse, yep, we're in love. I said, let me ask you a couple of questions. I said, how, how often did you uh, go out to breakfast or share a lunch with, with your wife? Not very often lately. I said, you ever beat this nurse for breakfast? Take your lunch break with this nurse and, and eat with her? Well, yeah. Okay. I said, how often did you leave notes for your wife when you went to work? Nah, not very rare. Not very often. You ever leave a note for the nurse at the nurse station or leave a note in her car? Well, yeah, yeah, I did that some. So how many times did you just give that nurse a, a call or show up where she was in the middle of the day just to say hi. 
Uh, yeah, I do that. Do that often with your wife? Uh, not, not really. I said, you didn't fall out of love. You invested in your relationship with this nurse. You didn't invest in your relationship with your wife. And, and you got what you invested in. No different than how our relationship with God moves along. What do we invest in? And it doesn't mean that we make it happen. It's just a matter of recognizing that we can either do those things which nurture relationship, or we could purposely not invest and experience the, the natural results of the lack of investment in that relationship. We, we, can, we can read the Bible, again, not just for information, but we could read the scriptures and say, Jesus, allow me to see and sense and, and, and be touched by you as I read this page this morning. Or we could not read it at all or just read it as, you know, okay, get to check that box off, you know, my reading list. How we spend our time, how we invest our time will result in relationship. You know, when we pray, do we pray expecting that God might speak back? You know, I've encouraged lots of times to have people, when, if, you, if you have a, a journal or if you don't, try something. Try having a little diary or a notebook and, and write down your prayers on the top half, but draw a line through the middle of that page, and on the bottom of half of the page, only write down what you're sensing God is saying in response. You'd be surprised. Do that for 30 days. You'd be surprised at how your ears get tuned in more when you have that expectation that God can speak. And then go back and read over each week. Read over what you wrote down. Some of the stuff might might have been just you or wishful thinking, but every once in a while you're going to write something down and it's going to have some oomph. That's the biblical word. It's going to, it's going to have some oomph. And you think, that, well, that, that, that wasn't me. That, that was God. And you're going to train yourself to be able to tune in to what God is saying. It's a relationship. And he's done all that is necessary and he continues to do all that's necessary for us to experience him. And what we get to do is we get to respond to what he has initiated. We get to respond to his relentless pursuit day after day, morning after morning, afternoon after afternoon. And see, that's the difference. I'll just end with this. That's the difference between being church attenders and, and being disciples. You know, church attenders, well, they, they just come to church so they could check it off. Went to church this week. That's what Christians do. Disciples aren't some kind of super church attender. Disciples are simply individuals who recognize, believe, and allow their expectations to be marked by relationship with one who is pursuing us a response to his relentless pursuit. Disciples are those who, who deliberately think about what can I do 
to grow in this relationship. Just like we would think about what could I do in order to grow in this relationship with a friend, a, a spouse, or anyone else. A disciple is just simply one who says, I want to know you better, Jesus. And therefore, I'm going to live my life with eyes by your grace that are, is looking for the evidence of your activity. Let's stand up. So many of us, simply put, have settled for a substandard Christian life. A Christian life of, of behaviors, a Christian life that is simply a matter of keeping rules, a Christian life that is simply a matter of, of growing in knowledge, and, and we are invited today and every day into a life with Jesus that is marked by a person who sees us, who knows us, who is at, at involved in our lives, and he is saying, will you just make room and, and give opportunity to just look for my fingerprints all over your life? Because if you begin to pause and if you begin to look for them, I promise, he promises, you will begin to grow in your ability to see his activity and experience what the Christian life is meant to be, a, a, a life where we walk as, as disciples with our master, who also happens to be our dad. So he, here's how I want to end. We're going to just have a time where we can, where we can say, Jesus, come and impact, impact me today. Fill me with your spirit. Just as you met uh, Saul on that road to Damascus, I want to meet you, not just at some moment in time, a one-time encounter, but I want something to be opened up. I want something to be changed on the inside so I begin to live with this expectation. So I'm going to, number one, invite individuals to come forward who just need that encounter with Jesus today. Maybe you are going through a long, dry period. Maybe you never realized that he wants this kind of relationship with you. I want to invite you to come forward, and I'm going to just pray. I'm going to anoint you with oil. I'm going to pray that God comes and allows you to, to begin to live the normal Christian life. You may be here this morning. You have physical problems, spiritual needs, emotional needs. I want to invite you forward too. Let's just make sure everybody that comes to the front has someone just put your hand on their shoulder, men with men, women with women, put your hand on their shoulder and ask Jesus to come and have his way in that moment with that individual. So come on forward, join me, and, and let's just encounter Jesus and let Jesus take hold of his kids. Amen? Come forward. Make sure everybody that comes to the front has someone praying for them. There's nothing. There's nothing worth more that will ever come close. Nothing can compare. You're our living hope. Your presence Lord, I have tasted and seen.
the sweetest of loves when my heart becomes free and my shame is undone in your presence Lord Holy Spirit and Holy Spirit you are welcome here come flood this place and fill the atmosphere your glory God is what our hearts long for to be overcome by your presence presence Lord I've tasted and I've seen I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves when my heart becomes free and my shame is undone In your presence Father, we just ask that you would come right now. Lord, I ask that you would bring us into a time of refreshing, a time of expectation. Lord, we ask that we would see the evidence of your activities in our lives, that our ears would be open to your voice, our eyes would be open to your activities. Father, I ask that you would anoint us also with that ability to to give away those things that you're giving to us, that as, as we are expressions of your love, we would also be seen and experiencing your love. As we are expressions of your mercy, your kindness, your forgiveness, we would see the activity of your mercy, kindness, forgiveness in our lives. Make us a people who are transformed by the the personal nature of your desires towards us. Transform our expectations. Free us from from worldviews that that obscure our ability to see you or to expect you. Free us from from patterns that we learned in in our homes with our parents that we superimpose on you. We break those patterns, Lord, in Jesus' name. We break the expectations that are false. Lord, just lift the curtain up so that we would see you and know you, hear you, experience your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name.
And all of God's people said, Amen.